This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Top business and definitely top stock story today is the Walt Disney Company because, man, it is up 15% in today's session. It's It's amazing. It's amazing given that the business model has been completely upended by the pandemic, too, right? It's parks are closed. Right. Movie theaters are closed. Right. Exactly. So many parts of their business. And they're like, you know what? We're going to ramp it up when it comes to streaming. And investors like it. So let's get into it. Um, We did get a bunch of headlines late yesterday. And that's why we're seeing such strong stock reaction. Let's do a deep dive into the company. Uh, Chris Palmieri is LA Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. He's on the phone in Los Angeles. Also, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tarala Chappelle. She covers the business of entertainment, telecommunications, and the deals world. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Chris, I want to kick it off with you. Whoa! Why is I mean the stock is up? It's all about streaming. Yeah, I mean you know it's like to your point. Uh, if you know you said at the beginning of the year there was going to be a global pandemic that would shut uh, <laughs> you know theme parks and cruise lines and movie theaters and live sports and you know should you sell Disney? Of course you would say yes. And yet here it is uh, continuing to hit new highs for a couple weeks now. Um, uh, it's yeah, it's all about streaming. You know the, they happen to launch this product, Disney Plus. Uh, a year ago in November, right before the pandemic, and everybody's now focused on home entertainment and what can I do with the family at home and mm-hmm. uh, schools out. And so subscription surge all around the world. Uh, and, and why Wall Street loves this is because it's a recurring subscription business. Everybody's paying their monthly Disney Plus bill, right. and so they can project those subscribers out at infinitum. So it's a you know it's it's a lot more reassuring than trying to get a movie sold this weekend. It's great visibility, or, right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I want to bring Tara in here because she got she has a new column out today called uh, "Disney's New Streaming Star Is a Netflix Is, is Netflix." You threat. guys talked earlier on Quick. Take, we right? talked earlier on Quick Take, and it's all about Star and and what Star is is doing and how Disney is positioning Star internationally. Uh, Tara, take us through this because it, it it didn't get a lot of attention when Disney uh, first acquired Star, but now it's kind of become center stage, right? And especially when Bob Chapek is sitting up in, in front of a big screen and you see the Disney Plus and then you see Star behind it, the logos, Tara. Right. That's what was so telling. You know, Hulu was moved to the side and right behind Chapek or whoever was speaking last night, you saw Disney Plus and Star. And that was definitely new. And what I love about it is, you know, covering mergers and acquisitions, when you see deals the size of the one Disney did for Fox, $85 billion, what often happens is there are businesses that are bought part of those deals that the acquirer doesn't really want, some smaller units or brands that they get because they kind of have to because they're buying the company. But with Star, I think it was a little overlooked at the time when the deal closed. People said, well, it's an Indian TV brand. Yeah, there's growth there, but it's going to stay kind of a a smaller piece of Disney. And instead, Disney is putting it front and center and building this brand into an international streaming powerhouse. It's going to be their global version of Netflix, the brand with all the sort of adult programming beyond the stuff that's on Disney+. And it just makes a whole lot of sense. It's kind of filling a hole that Disney Plus had. And I I think people are going to like it. It's going to make it a really compelling offering vis-a-vis Netflix. 
Tara, we won't see it here in the U.S., though, right? We'll see Hulu instead. Right. So they're only doing it outside the U.S. with Star. And in the U.S., it seems like, at least for now, they're sticking with this bundle for $13 a month where you can get Disney Plus, Hulu if you want some more um, you know, adult programming, and ESPN Plus if you're a sports fan. I think the, the U.S. offering is a little bit messy. They need to figure it out a little bit more. But the, the global offerings are really compelling. Well, and, you know, Chris, come on back in on this conversation. Global, right? There's U.S. growth and, and growing in the U.S. market, but global and the opportunities there for Disney, um, they've always thought about beyond the U.S. Well, if you look at the projections they made yesterday, 350 million uh, worldwide subscribers by 2024, that's bigger than, you know, Netflix right now is at 195 million, but even our, our uh, consensus forecast on Bloomberg is for Netflix around 312 million by mm. 2024. So they're basically saying we're going to be bigger than Netflix. They have an advantage, which is they have these four uh, streaming services. So you can, you know, if you're a Netflix customer, you're only getting one. They have different plans. You can have with ads or without, but you're, but you're not subscribing to both. With Disney, you can easily have three different services, so the one customer, three, uh, you know, plans. So, uh, so they have that advantage. You know, they're tailoring these for different markets, as Tara said, you know, sports for Latin American customers, uh, streaming uh, in Europe, uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of FX content and the more adult uh, Fox films are going to be bundled in with Disney Plus for a higher fee. So right. they're trying all these different strategies. So, Tara, if, if, if you're Netflix right now, what are, you, what are you thinking? Because, you know, Netflix was the, the company that invented direct-to-consumer streaming. Is it threatened by Disney's power now? Yeah, it's funny. Netflix will say that they welcome the competition. That's kind of been their, their <laughs> That's what they always say. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they always say that. But I think it, it, what it means is that, you know, Netflix isn't standing still. Like, they, they are growing. They are constantly creating new content. So they're going to have more competition, but I think what it means is they kind of try to step that up a little bit, maybe the quality of the stuff they're putting on their service, maybe more kids stuff so that they can try to compete head on with Disney the way Disney is trying to do with Netflix. But, you know, as a consumer, this is a good time. Everyone's always trying to figure out who's going to be the Netflix killer, who's going to be left standing at the end of the streaming wars. But for consumers, it's important to remember competition is a good thing. It keeps prices low. It keeps the value proposition up. So more companies that are fighting for our dollars, the better. How much of this, in terms of the emphasis on streaming, was, you know, the brainchild of Bob Iger, longtime CEO, um, now I think he's executive chairman, uh, and also how much of it is Bob Chapek? Well, uh, you know, there was this narrative uh, early this year that, uh, you know, Bob Iger was still running the show. He's a powerful force, no doubt. Yeah. Um, certainly, Chapek listens to him. But, you know, there were certainly hallmarks in yesterday of, of JPEG uh, running the things. In fact, there was almost this disconnect where uh, Bob Iger gets up to speak and he says, you know, we're going to emphasize uh, quality over quantity, and they announce 100 movies and TV shows, uh, every retread you could possibly imagine, Sister Act 3, uh, the dog from Up gets his own series. <laughs> I mean, we need was, content, Chris. I, 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 I Baby Yoda joins Bob, the board. <laughs> exactly. Bob JPEG, you know, sitting like at a you know, po- you know portable uh, table in the lo- <laughs> parking lot at Disney, just saying yes to a long line of people <laughs> pitching him ideas. Uh, it was it was very much uh, let's throw everything at the wall and and really just 
very different from Disney's film strategy under Iger. When he took over, you know, they deliberately pared back all of those movies that were, you know, the sports films, the, you know, adult-oriented comedies, and they really focused deliberately on these big uh, blockbuster superhero and Star Wars and Pixar movies that they could get more bang for the buck out of. And so totally different strategy now. This stuff is expensive to do, though. It's mm. expensive to shoot. It's expensive to get the talent. Uh, why do investors seem to be ignoring how much cash this is actually going to cost Disney? It's back to our earlier point about it's all about the subscriber numbers. And so if you can get to 300 million subscribers paying you 10 bucks a month, you know, it's, it's just a huge surge in dependable revenue. So what Wall Street, it's not about the earnings right now. I mean, Disney is losing money, uh, you know, given the pandemic and everything. It's, it's all about the future subscriber revenue. I mean, this is Netflix's playbook. Netflix just burns cash, and they've been burning mm-hmm. cash for years buying content. It's, it's almost any tech company, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it was the Amazon you know, story, right, way yeah. back when? Exactly. How how many uh, you know long term subscribers can you get? Because subscribers stick around, and and um, and you know it's it's predictable revenue. So, so yeah. So the fact that they're spending more money, losing more money, Wall Street applauds. So so Chris, listen, you've been following this company for a long time. I mean, where does I don't know things like Hulu fit into this? Where do those you know big releases to the big screen? You know, certainly after Warner Brothers kind of shocked the industry by saying, you know, we're going to go straight to you know streaming or offer them in streaming and theater at the same time. Where does all of that fit into Disney's world? Because the big screen, it's important to Disney. It is, and and I think one of the takeaways from yesterday is they they indicated that they were not going the Warner Brothers route, and in fact, some of the theater chain stocks are up quite a bit today as a result. Um, you know, so they're going to save the new Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford, the next Star Wars directed by Wonder Woman director Patty Jenkins. Those are going in theaters. Uh, you know, they announced one movie, you know, a new animated film, which was entirely new uh, Contact Zaya and the uh, uh, Last Dragon is going to go up in theaters and uh, on Disney Plus for a you know a premium a thirty dollar purchase on the same day. So they're testing that model. You know they mm. they're putting a Tom Hanks Pinocchio movie direct to Disney Plus. So you know they're trying a lot of different things, but they're very clearly not saying everything's going to the streaming service day and date with the movie release theater release. So it's a, it's a different approach. It's more nuanced, and it gives the theaters some hope. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. Good stuff. Ten Star Wars series spinoffs and ten Marvel series that will debut on Disney+. Plus. I know. Fa- mem- family members. I it's a, what we want. I have a baby brother, man. He's just going to be, like, all into that. <laughs> Look, as long as they continue to have The Mandalorian, I'm going to keep paying for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> you're going to be paying for it for a long time with yeah, you're your right. son, two point. years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'll be paying for it for a long time. Chris Palmieri, thank you so much. L.A. Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News on the phone from L.A. Check him out at Chris Palmieri on Twitter. I mean, listen, the Disney story, I'm just fascinated by the company and the strategy. Those acquisitions of Lucasfilm and (sighs) Pixar and Marvel, I mean, were brilliant then and even looking more brilliant now. Yep. And they just kind of, you know, the strategy, they just move it around the platforms. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. And Tim, this story I noticed, it's been among the most read on the Bloomberg. It's about a group of guys, traders who rode the crash in oil prices. And as a result, they made hundreds of millions of dollars. Not too shabby. It's all about what happened on April 20th. I remember that day where I was because this was just mind-bending what happened, right? Because oil prices went negative. Oil prices crashing, going to negative, essentially requiring that people pay you to take oil off your hands. Or you paid people, rather. Right. To to take take the oil off off your hands. Right. Like, it just didn't make sense for anybody who's been following the financial markets. This story is reported for Bloomberg Businessweek. And here to tell us about the guys and the ride is Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. It's written by Liam Vaughn, senior reporter at Bloomberg News. And Joe, let's kick it off with you. Uh, this is like one of those stories that I feel like, again, you can make a movie out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it's what we try to do. And uh, this is one that, you know, Liam has been close to for a while. Um, and, you know, we reported in Business Week uh, back in, over the summer, actually, when we found out the details of uh, of the trade. And at the it was more than 500 million and now it turns out it's even more than that it's it's 660 million dollar profit and what we've also learned in that time is is what makes this story so special um and it becomes almost a character portrait of the the group of of guys who were behind the trade and um we know uh, very little about them, but what we do know is all in the story, and uh, it's this little group of guys in Essex, England. Paul Cummins. I mean, I feel like it's just, like, as I said, you could just kind of, you know, you just want to pull out his story um, because well, it's you, you like he was a scra- by his name, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of the joy of the story is that the the cast of characters, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a Guy Ritchie film, um, yes. and they have... It's a really tight knit crew, and and the character that you mentioned it goes by Cuddles, or that's how he's affectionately known within the group. Somehow I feel like he's not cuddly. Can't make the stuff up. Well, and then there's another guy named Dog, right? <laughs> yep, Dog. <laughs> uh, and you know that was part of the charm of the story was like you know we we uh, as we found out uh, a little bit about their details, we tried to kind of bring them all. Uh, to light and the fact that um, you know the other element of the story that I just find totally fascinating is is Cuddles actually really does know oil he's been in the the <laughs> trenches for for decades now yeah. but some of these other people um, don't in they're in their twenties yeah. uh, and basically it's this ring of uh, of of characters characters who sort of know each other and that's all they all they know and they they've kind of grown up with each other. And, and have learned um, the oil trade. And that's kind of, I mean, they're almost like novices in that they're, they probably don't have that much experience. Right. And yet they had a, um, a heck of a day on, on April 20th. Well, and this is one of those stories, like, as Tim was talking about, Joel, like, when it happened, we're all thinking, okay, first of all, this makes no sense, negative, you know, we're all getting used to negative rates, but this whole idea of negative oil prices and what it what it meant. And the thing is, it happened, and then it, it went away. Um, but as, it, as people wanted to kind of understand the trade that day and how it happened, that's where investigators uh, on in the U.S. and, I guess, elsewhere really started looking into to try and understand how did this happen? And that's what really led them to this gang of nine. 
Yeah, we, we don't really have visibility into into where any sort of investigation or where that yeah. stuff could go. But what we do know is that the the trade is, um, it, you know, some of these details were ones that we were able to report on earlier, but then even learn a little bit more of for this story. Um, it comes down to TAS, T-A-S. Right. And the it's also known as quote unquote banging the clothes, right. and trade trade at settlement, oil, right? Trade at settlement. Trade at settlement, exactly. Yeah. And, and there is um, a, a little bit of um, understanding within the community that this is not an you know anything nefarious or illegal. It's been practiced for years, especially back in um, the commodities glory days, and that's kind of where. Um, cuddles as he as he goes that. by uh, perfected this and so th- it, we think that they basically were able to uh, do that during the close really take advantages of the price going negative there is some some speculation or interest in it whether or not they actually pushed it negative hmm. just through their own trading activity but that's not for us to say uh, but yeah, I, you know, when you look back on the course of this year, we've seen so many incredible things, so many weird circumstances so true. that, you know, even, even that, that day a negative oil remains one of the weirdest things. And, and yet, you know, uh, this, this crew is responsible for, for perhaps maybe the trade of the year, I think. Yeah. And I guess my question would be, you know, even though it was such an anomaly to see oil do this and, and yeah. crash like this in a day is this trade still possible in the future or by shining a light on it like this does it sort of decrease the opportunity that people can can do this you know I, it's it's hard to know um i i think in many ways this was a perfect alignment where yeah. we had um, a coronavirus and supply and demand things so we had oil already come down and and then you know all of this coincided basically with this one day that happens every month with oil where the contracts roll over. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, we, we even thought maybe the following month there could be a repeat because we were still on lockdown right then and demand had evaporated. So who knows? I, I do think, you know, one thing we know about, about finance is that weird things happen. There are glitches. Um, no one thought the prices could ever go negative yeah. until there were started to be warnings. Like, days before that it was it was possible so i i think it took a special alignment and when you kind of actually um you know read the story closely it it seemed like they knew what they were doing and everything happened to align just right well and to be fair and to be fully transparent uh no authorities have accused vega capital or any of the traders referenced in this story on doing anything illegal and i love the law firm i guess that represents eight of the nine traders uh in this group joel each the quote is each of our clients regularly puts his own money at risk to try to make a profit sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and 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 liam even includes in his story that you know if they'd made maybe seven million dollars that day nobody would have maybe really you know, like, yeah, okay, whatever. But it was just, they made almost 700 million. And so authorities, yeah, they had to take a look. <laughs> and maybe they don't yeah, need to I do think, this trade you know, again. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that last note of the story is another trader who says, look, if it was BP or Goldman Sachs, nobody would be saying anything. Mm. But the fact yeah. that these are, you know, working class lads in a neighborhood like Essex, which is is basically the equivalent of New Jersey for, hey, for hey, Americans. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> All right, close this. There mic. you go. These That's guys. your attention. <laughs> you so, got my so attention. there you go. 
Good. But, yeah, Maybe I, it was just the, a great that, trade. Maybe it was just a great trade. Exactly. <laughs> so that that's what got people talking about it. The fact that these aren't, it's not a, a firm that everybody knows. It's just some guys who had a great day. God, I liked you up to then, Joel Weber. <laughs> Have a good weekend. You told it well. Uh, everybody should check it out. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. Give him some shade. Yeah, you're not going to forget about that comment come Monday, are you? <laughs> liked him, really, up to that point. All right, for those of you listening in New York, D.C., and San Francisco, watching on YouTube, Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to continue. If you're listening on Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, Bay State Business is coming up next. Check out the magazine, Incredible Stories. You can find it on newsstands, on the Bloomberg and online at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so, yeah, tough story once again of our day, of our week, of our year, no doubt about it, is everything and anything to do with the coronavirus and vaccine. Charlie Pellet just talking about uh, the story that we've seen came out of the Washington Post uh, that the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, telling Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the FDA, to submit his recognition. But Hahn's saying, no, that's not likely, right? Or not happening. Yeah, that's what, that's what Hahn is responding. And, and look, I think it raises, if this story indeed turns out to be true, I mean, it's a Washington Post story. Correct. Um, it doesn't help confidence in the vaccine. No. At a time when Americans are concerned that it's been rushed through. Exactly. And let's get into that with our next guest, Dr. Ian Lusbader, with us as he is always every Friday. He's clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York on a day when global cases exceed 69.7 million deaths, surpassing 1.59 million. Um, Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you back with Tim and myself. Um, how are you? Okay, doing uh, doing well. Thank you, Carol and Tim. Happy Friday. Yeah, you sound um, a little tired. <laughs> well, it's been a long week. It's been a busy week, and it has. Uh, but I think we have good news coming. I think we're we within the next few days. I think we are going to get FDA approval. Yeah. Uh, the vaccine advisory committee, uh, seventeen to four, uh, voted. Uh, you know, to to approve this uh, authorization. And I think uh, literally within the next few days, we'll get the full FDA uh, committee to approve it. Hey, Ian, and hang, I think on. By the hey, hang on. I, yeah. I want to I get to that, but I do want to get to that headline that uh, it looks like the Washington Post was, was, or they were reporting, that the White House was threatening the FDA chief um, to basically leave uh, Approve his... it or else. Yeah. <laughs> right. No way to mince me here. So, yeah, what does that do? And Tim brought up a really good point. What does that do to confidence in the process, especially for the American public, when there are still many out there, it's safe to say, that are a little nervous about taking the vaccine? There are. And, and even some physicians I know are, are a little hesitant. You know, I, I don't think uh, politically or scientifically that was good. I mean, you have to let the, the, the FDA uh, evaluate it, which they did. The vaccine data is very good uh, in terms of um, efficacy and uh, hopefully lives uh, to be saved. And, and side effects are, are low, not zero. So it, to me, it's certainly unnecessary to, um, you know, to threaten or cajole the FDA, and, you know, we really should sort of stay out of that scientific realm. Hmm. So I think that was uh, an error in judgment, and I think unnecessary, because the FDA is go going to do, no matter what, uh, the right thing. I, I don't think you're really subject to uh, a political pressure anyway, because these are committees, and they're composed of infectious disease specialists and heads of departments and... People who know what they're variety. doing. <laughs> well, what yeah, would... Right. 
Doctor, what would you say to someone who is is seeing the news from the UK this week and, and understanding that people in the UK are already getting shots of Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, an American company, Pfizer at least, and not getting shots here in the US? I mean, what can, what light can you shed on the FDA approval process as to why it is taking a few more days to get it approved here? Well, uh, it is really just the difference of a few days. And I think this is not like the space race where you have to be the first one on the moon. Uh, you know, I think we've had an amazing under a year to get a vaccine is really unheard of. Uh, I think Warp Speed did did an amazing job. You know, and I think the FDA, or at least the way we work here, is that it goes through several committees. And it was eight hours plus of discussion on the vaccine um, advisory committee. They had lots of different opinions. Uh, you can listen to it if you want on YouTube. I think it's a, a, long, uh, a long series. And they really weighed out the pros and cons. That's just how we do it here. And I think people should feel confident about that because really experts, leading experts, reviewed the data. They went over it. Uh, this was not a rush judgment in any way. I'm not saying the U.K. was a rush judgment. Yeah. Maybe their committees work faster. Maybe they started a few days earlier. But I think we're going to start giving out the first vaccines. My bet is later next week. Wow. And that's what you anticipate coming to NYU Langone that you guys start to get it? I do. Yeah. Mm. I think the FDA sometime in the next two, three days, four days, will uh, formally approve it, I think, based on all the data. And I think uh, it will be ready to ship by midweek uh, if all goes well. And I think the first vaccines probably will be later next week or early the week after is my, my guess. I have no inside information, uh, but that's my guess as to the timeline. Do you think the rollout from the, the recommendations from the CDC about making sure frontline workers, uh, healthcare workers, and, and those who are most at risk, this is the right way to distribute the vaccine? I do. You know, unfortunately, we literally see multiple COVID patients every day. Fortunately, the volume in the hospital, uh, at least in our area, is, is ticking up, but not massively. Um, and I think the frontline healthcare workers are the most at risk, elderly at the most at risk. And, uh, and then uh, the rest of the population. And, and I think once uh, some people see that we took it and that we're doing fine, they'll be more encouraged to take it as well. That's a really good point. Yeah. When, when they see the doctors taking oh, it. Totally, right? And what I do yeah. wonder too is Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, um, they delayed some advanced trials of their experimental uh, COVID-19 shot. I guess it didn't produce a strong enough response in some older people. So that their drugs are being pushed out maybe in terms of availability to the end of next year. I mean, Ian, this is what we're going to see, but that does complicate potentially getting vaccines to the entire world, correct? We need all of these companies to have success. We do. Manufacturing vaccines is not easy. Uh, there are a lot of limiting steps, and I think we need multiple vaccines. Again, the data that I've seen uh, preliminarily, at least with Pfizer and Moderna, AstraZeneca is that, you know, again, playing with a dose a little bit, you know, that we're getting into the 90 percent um, uh, efficacy, which is great. You know, again, flu shots, not even that strong, and they're mandatory in many medical institutions. You know, they may be 20, 30, 40 percent effective. Right. So uh, we do need a lot of companies. And then when you start getting out into Africa or other countries where they don't have infrastructure, you really need vaccines that that. Uh, need to be uh, transported without such critical conditions of, you know, minus sub-zero temperatures. So in a way, it's good that, that yeah. uh, perhaps more Western countries who have the technology are getting it first. 
Right. It's great that Pfizer's coming out. I want to get to this news that we learned earlier today from Governor Cuomo saying that indoor dining here in New York City is set to close on Monday. Is is this, in your opinion, the right move? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, I think everyone is trying to make their best judgments all the way around. Uh, we do expect a, a bit of a, a bump, a, a surge in cases after Thanksgiving and probably, um, you know, around the holidays in December as well. Um, certainly, we know outdoor dining is fine. I think it's a tough call to really restrict indoor dining. I think what happened is that it was hard to sort of that 25 percent is is a reasonable number. But I think there have been a number of infections people have uh, had uh, from dining out. So I can understand it. The poor restaurants have been under strain. Yeah. Uh, the whole industries yeah, are under so strain. Hard. But I think I, I have to agree, um, at least temporarily, for, for a short window to perhaps let case uh, volume drop a bit. Um, I think uh, it should be reevaluated probably on a weekly basis because if, if positivity rates come down, they should be reopened. I can tell you it's a tough time. By next summer, uh, we are not going to be wearing masks. Uh, most Americans will have a vaccine, and we will look back on this. But it is going to be a rough few weeks. I wish uh, we could take a time machine and, and get there. Yeah, and move ahead. Yeah. Hey, I, there's a headline out from ABC that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci says he will get vaccinated publicly. Um, so Charlie Pellet just sharing that with me. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think he understands. So many people understand. And we were talking, you know, Ian, that, you know, by... You and other members of the medical community getting the vaccine, I think that is going to, to really provide incredible reassurances to the mass public. I'm hoping by next Friday when we do another uh, medical segment mm. that I will have had it by then. Yeah. So I will let you know if I did and, and how I feel. Well, uh, and look forward to, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to know is what it feels like to get a shot of something that's stored at negative 70 degrees into your arm, right? I mean, that's got it. You can feel that, right? For sure. It's a deep uh, IM injection. Uh, it's got these uh, lipid uh, particles that protect the messenger RNA. Yeah, it's a it's a unique vaccine. It's a new vaccine. I'll let you know how it feels uh, okay. if I if I get it before Friday. Well, we look forward to that. Hey, Ian, I do want to ask you, too. Um, what are you seeing when it comes to COVID cases in New York City? We're definitely seeing a slight increase. Okay. Uh, the hospitals um, are also seeing uh, an increase, nowhere near March. I suspect part of what we're seeing is uh, the positivity. In other words, I, we're estimating at 20 or over 20 percent, at least of the New York City population, has antibodies. So I think that may be moderating it a bit. Right. And when the vaccine starts rolling out, there is some protection after the first shot. We don't really know how much, and we certainly know many vaccines, like the shingles vaccine, pneumonia vaccine, you really need two shots for optimal antibodies. But I think there's some data that there will be protection after one shot. So I really think in the next few weeks, we will at least have some good news uh, coming along. But uh, cases are up a little bit, and I think that probably factored into uh, uh, Governor Cuomo's decision about, about right. restaurants. But we've got to hang in there a few more weeks, and I think I we'll know. begin to see a little more daylight. Yeah, fingers crossed here. The, the other thing, though, that is still tricky, right, that you can get the vaccine, and so you are essentially protected, but you still don't know. You can you can still, though, potentially spread the virus. Is that correct? Help me understand that. Well, 
yes, you're a good, a very good point. You're you're, you're on the uh, cutting edge with with nuances. So there's some rationale about people who've had it wearing a mask. In other words, you've had antibodies, you had COVID, you survived. Should you wear a mask? And, you know, we feel that it, it does make sense for a while. And that's probably true of the vaccine. There may be some uh, carriage of the virus in nasal passages. I think that's a relatively low risk. Um, and I, I don't I think it's not going to be meaningful. I think most physicians plan to wear masks even after they get the vaccine yeah. as they're seeing patients really for a few months until we really see a drop in cases. And I think part of that is cosmetic. I think it looks good. And probably there's some protection. But once you have antibodies, generally they will go everywhere, including to the nose where yeah. there's a virus. There's some thought that there will be fewer antibodies in the nose and you could harbor it or potentially infect other people. I think that's a theoretical risk, uh, and but a relatively low risk. Uh, doctor, we don't have much time left, but uh, what message do you have for people who may be putting off going to the doctor because they're worried about being exposed to the virus. Are medical offices doing a safe, uh, are protecting people? Uh, great point, Kim. Thank you. Great point. People need to come in for their screening, uh, testing, colonoscopy, mammograms, uh, vaccines, flu shots. The offices are safe. There's social distancing. Everyone wears masks. Many offices have air purifiers. I right. just went to my dentist and they have ultraviolet air purifiers. So we need to uh, be less afraid. Get out there and get your baseline health care done. And uh, yeah. and avoid crowds inside. You may need to take a little break from restaurants, but I think the doctor's offices are relatively safe, mm-hmm. and it's important to get your your screening healthcare. Thank I you, get, Jim. I got to say, I got a root canal. I've been in and out of doctor's offices. Don't do I got to go to the dentist. Screening. They have been incredible. So yes, you do need to go to the dentist. Right, I mean, not week. not for anything. I'm <laughs> but you just got to take care of your teeth. What are you telling me? All right, Doctor Ian Lesbader, stay safe, be well. Clinical associate professor of medicine, NYU Langone. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, we've just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close, getting ready to wrap up this trading week. We're off our lows big time uh, when you take a look at the trading day, Tim. Uh, it's been kind of a funny day. Like we kind of sold off a little bit, but not dramatically, but we've definitely bounced back here. But we're kind of overall little changed. Yeah, and I think investors taking a step back and thinking about stimulus or lack so thereof. Too. And when is that going to happen, if ever? Like a little bit of a breather. We'll see yeah. what happens over Except the Except for those Disney investors. <laughs> Except for those Disney investors. Or if you happen to hit one of the IPOs this week. Yeah, so let's very get true. It, right? So let's get into it with Ryan Dietrich. He's chief market strategist over at LPL Financial. They've got $810 billion in assets under management. He joins us once again on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Ryan, nice to have you back with us here on Bloomberg. Um, so Tim and I are watching the markets. It's kind of a, a little bit of a mellow day, but it's been an interesting week. But I think we are on track for some losses for the week overall when it comes to the broader market and the S&P 500. How do you see the market environment right now? Are there any technicals kind of, you know, uh, jumping out at you at this point? Yeah, Carol, thanks for having me back. But you're right. I guess markets, they don't go up forever, right? We're having a little pullback now. 
I mean, let's not forget, we had over a 10% rally in equities just in November. And if you look at the market technical seasonality, the first half of December historically is actually kind of flat for stocks. Most people think, you know, Santa Claus comes to town, December's always strong. The majority of the strength in the month of December tends to take place the second half of the month, and that's, you know, kind of where obviously we're heading here uh, fairly soon. But technicals are strong. I've been coming off with you guys for a while. Saying there's a lot of participation. Technicals are strong. The one thing that gets me, I consider kind of market sentiment part of market technicals. Sentiment's awfully frothy. I know you guys have talked about all the big IPOs, the excitement that comes with those. Right. Uh, put the call ratios, and here's the lowest levels they've been in decades. If you look at like the five-day CBOE, put the call ratio, um, investor sentiment polls. We can go on and on. Markets can keep going up when sentiment's optimistic, but that does set a much higher bar for maybe a little bit of disappointment. Um, and markets finally can pull back as people are a little too optimistic. We think that makes sense as we head into uh, early, sometime early next year. What is the political risk here? I mean, what are you watching for in, in, in terms of from Washington? It, it does seem like that there will be yeah. some sort of bill passed, but it's going to be smaller than I think the Democrats want. I mean, that's pretty much guaranteed. But what does it mean for yeah. uh, what you're watching? Right. Well, first off, Tim, nice to talk with you. But but you're right. I mean, that's, that's pretty priced in at this point, right? Some type of fifth stimulus bill is extremely priced in. I mean, we think it's going to happen, right? I mean, honestly, guys, we were talking about on August 6th, the summer recess, right? That's when we thought we were going to have this stimulus bill. Now here we are in the middle of December still talking about it. So it's it's going to happen. I mean, I, I, at the same time, it is politics. We're waiting on the runoff in Georgia, the makeup of Congress. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is the Fed is still a major backstop. Fiscal stimulus is coming. The economy, obviously, the vaccine news is great, right? Economy is opening up. So all these things are playing in there. Um, and just the fact that earnings are likely going to increase more than 20% in the U.S., 30% in emerging markets next year. Um, you know, fiscal stimulus matters near term, but bigger picture, there's just a lot of well, tailwinds that do say, hey, things are still looking pretty good next year. Hey, Ryan, I want to go back to Dave Wilson and his chart of the day because he talked about um, earnings estimates for the next couple of years making U.S. Okay. stocks look more costly in historical terms than just one year's worth of projections or even past results. And he said S&P 500 closing yesterday at 26 times earnings. Uh, and he goes, it's close to the September 2nd ratio of 27.2. That was the highest since we saw some data being compiled by us uh, uh, here at Bloomberg, which goes back in, to 1990. So when you look at the valuation of the market, are you concerned uh, when you look at uh, next year's earnings estimates? We're not super concerned. Is, is it a, a, a one something that we think, oh, this is like 1999 markets extremely overvalued? Right. I don't think so here, Carol. But I'll tell you what. Look at emerging markets. I mentioned them a second ago. They're extremely cheap relative to the U.S. And you know what? Emerging markets are not above where they were in 2018. Emerging markets aren't even above where they were in 2007. You want to talk about a long base and a long time to kind of consolidate. We like the U.S. still. Don't get me wrong. But in the models that we run for our more than 17,000 advisors, Emerging markets are an area that we really think next year, from a globally diversified portfolio point of view, that could be an area that you really start to see some strength and outperformance, honestly, led by China. Nobody trusts Chinese data. I get that. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of positives. South Korea, Taiwan, China, there are some really good things happening, and that's places we're looking for investments next year. What does the re- that are cheap, to be honest. What does the recovery here look like? Does it, does it, it doesn't yeah. look like this V-shape. We're, we're not going to have that. We, we know that. Um, what do you look at? Yeah, I mean, everyone wants the, the, the shape, right? We've been seeing a swoosh-shaped recovery where it's easy off the initial surge. We saw that the last couple of months. 
Now it's getting tougher. Look at initial claims just yesterday. Um, you know, there, there's going to be some sticky points here. But, but the truth of the matter is we just released our 2021 outlook. We called it Powering Through here at Elko Research. We think the U.S. can grow about 4% next year, globally probably 5%. Or again, earnings of the S&P can gain maybe about 20%, which would get us to a 165 multiple. And we've got a fair value target on the S&P of 3,900. Now, I know that's a little lower than what a lot of people have been laying out there, but honestly, I've been coming on with you guys where we've been bullish pretty much this whole time. And, and we think maybe now that everyone's starting to get optimistic here, that inner contrarian in it says, well, maybe let's pull it back a little bit. Right. But again, globally, my goodness gracious, the emerging markets are an area that, like I said earlier, is a lot of opportunity for investors. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Ryan, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. So kind of laying out his metrics and what he's watching. But uh, I think it is a week, and I think you said it well, that it just feels like a day where we're going to just take a break a little bit and maybe the week because it does look like we're going to end lower for the week overall. I think investors are just kind of waiting to see if we pull something out of D.C. potentially that gives us some optimism that kind of helps shore up the op, uh, the economy. Essentially. Yeah, and, and I think like Ryan was saying that it's kind of priced in right now. I think the big surprise would be if we continued not to get something as the end of the year gets closer and closer. Yeah, exactly. I think that would certainly create some disappointment. I'm just going over to Airbnb and DoorDash because I wanted to see how these stocks are trading. So Airbnb, which was up, finishing up about 113% yesterday, it's down about 2.5%, so not a big deal. <laughs> uh, DoorDash, which was up uh, almost 86% in its first day of trading on Wednesday, lost about 2% yesterday, and it's down about 6% today, which is to be expected considering the run. But it'll be fun too and interesting to watch what the trend line will be. Yeah, the hard work is ahead for these companies. They have to live up to the expectations, totally. and these expectations got lofty this week. Yeah, and listen, both of them are pandemic plays, and I think some think that maybe we'll see who has the longer-term play post-pandemic, ultimately. I don't know I who it's going to be. Yeah, I don't know. People have been saying, I think, DoorDash, because they're so, in terms of market share and cemented in food delivery, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, maybe people are going to be traveling and living in different places. Airbnb could benefit. Exactly, exactly. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.